Welcome to the Thunderstock Show, the podcast that brings valuable brainstorms to enrich your life, liberty, and pursuit of property. Our special guest today is a friend and former training partner of mine, Sean Lees. Sean, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Russ. So, Sean and I got a lot closer in 2019 when he was competing for a Greco tournament. And I was competing, preparing for a Pan American Games in Jiu-Jitsu. My first and only crack at the Pan Ams. Uh, Sean, what was your journey like with wrestling? And how did you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to full send and, and compete at a national stage? Um, I've always been trying to get to that point, uh, and, you know, I don't have a lot of time left competitively, so I, you know, I, I had to get it in while I still could, so it, I was in good shape, and uh, I was able to find you and some other training partners, so I just thought it was a, a good, good time to make another run at it. Um, I tried, I've been trying to make the world team trials or the Olympic team trials, depending on the year, since around 99 mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't that doesn't mean I competed every year but those were the goals and between family and uh, poor decisions I didn't always I wasn't always prepared to compete mm-hmm. so but I was in a good place that year in 2019 and made a run at it but uh, yeah it didn't work out but it was uh, that that's kind of what got me there yeah one of the things that I remember about that camp in particular was you know, you came in and it was like a man on fire to the, tra- the training practices. Like I wrestled from elementary, junior high, co- uh, high school, college. And that room between, you know, you and the other training partners and coaches was just like, this is like laser focus on a freaking mission. <laughs> and I remember one time, like, you know, now it's, it's you know, we you may have had like a pop in your ribs. You just like grabbed it, pulled it out. Like, all right, keep going. I was like, that is hardcore. Yeah. So what what do you think? Like, How did you get to that degree of like intensity? Were you born that way or were you made that way? Absolutely wasn't born that way. <laughs> uh, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, awkward growing up. I was the oldest in the family and uh, just real quiet and didn't get involved in sports until I was a eighth grader. And so like, it took a lot to, to get to that point. And even through playing sports in school, I was still maybe a, a little timid. I learned how to be intense, but definitely inside I was still a little timid. And it wasn't until uh, joining the Marine Corps that, mm. you know, things kind of took a turn in that. Uh, not my upbringing, you know, seeing a lot of kind of tough stuff growing up. That's why I was awkward, I guess. I So I did have some intestinal fortitude, but mm. I didn't know how to, quite utilize it or anything you know like I guess if I was met with tough challenges they didn't seem that tough to me compared to what I was going through at home so mm. you know being on a sports team was no big deal I, it was almost an escape yeah you yeah. know you get you get praised on a sports team for efforts you yeah. know and so like I, I always liked being uh, training hard and I knew I'd get accolades for that you know now did you grow up in central Pennsylvania around the area or where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Ephrata. Ephrata. Yeah. And uh both my parents blue collar workers and you know, you know, like a lot of blue collar workers in the seventies in Ephrata, uh they, they got involved in alcohol, my father and drugs a lot and mm-hmm. it was just a lot of, you know, craziness growing up and, and seeing a lot of stuff that you know, you you know, young kids shouldn't see. My kids 
saw a little bit of that with my drinking over the years. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of other stuff with, you know, domestic violence and things like that. So that you saw. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is a little bit about, you know, kind of shaped me growing up as, as a youngster. Um, and, and why I wasn't sure how, how to maybe interact with people normally. Sure. <laughs> so to speak. When it's so intense uh, at home and then you go to like a, the civilian world, if you will, the right. analogy, like, uh, I'll rope up my hands. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. Um, so then with the Marine Corps, would, how would you describe that like stage of life? Was it kind of like you found a bunch of other people that were like you, had like a new camaraderie or was it like, okay, a continuation of high school sports where, you know, you put in the effort, you do the right thing and get rewarded or how that looked like? It, it was unfortunate for, I, I believe it was unfortunate that I went into it. It was after desert storm when I got done with boot camp, So it was downtime pretty much now. Somalia kicked up and there was a little skirmish in Haiti while I was in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was pretty much just boot camp for me was just like wrestling camp. Like I just had to beat everybody at everything. Yeah. So it was, so I, I, I got appointed leadership just because of my athleticism and not getting tired. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then out once we got into the fleet, you know, I got involved in drinking a little bit. And found that, you know, I, I watched Full Metal Jacket going in. I'm like, okay, so like if I'm out of line in the military, people put me back in line. This is going to be great. This is what I need. Right. I love that structure. I love the that. Discipline, accountability. Yeah. yeah. But it, it wasn't like that even back in the 90s. It already had started with just paperwork. You know, like they'd, they'd write you up. You know, I only dug a couple fighting holes. No one beat me up for stepping out of line. And I thought that was ridiculous. And, and I hated it. Like, yeah. I went in to what was supposed to be the fiercest fighting force in the country, right? Other than special forces. Sure. And... It wasn't as fierce as you were hoping for. No, I mean, I... Yeah. I didn't go out of my way to challenge myself, probably, like I could have. But, you know, I got through four years. And, you know, I came out of boot camp as a Lance Corporal E3... And I almost came out as a Lance Corporal. I, I did get promoted right at the end. Yeah. You know, I got busted down once and I didn't really look to impress people with how fast I could run and how quickly I could follow orders. You know, we, I, I was even maybe then a little anti-establishment. Yeah, yeah. You know? Right. Because there's sometimes a confluence or a difference rather between what you're told and what is right. And what, you know, for me, I don't like hypocrisy. Like I, I don't, I don't like to, you know, someone to, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Like, right. I'm going to try to do what's right. And I feel like that might've been some of it. it, it and, and you know, in boot camp, everybody had to do whatever, whoever was below the person, they had to be able to do it. And it was, it was like that in the fleet to an extent, but you found people finding spots to rest. Mm. And, I, and that was the thing. Like, if, you know, when I became a crew chief of my vehicle, if my crewman stepped out of line, I made sure he understood that that you're not going to step out of line. I'm not going to write anybody up. Mm. You know, I'm going to beat your ass. Yeah. And that's how it's going to be. When we get off work, we're going to come to your room. We're going to take care of things and you're going to be in line tomorrow. You know, and I just couldn't get that out of my, out of my superiors. Nobody was willing to throw hands. And I just found that asinine. 
there is a quote I like, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, civilized men behave like savages because they forget they can get a fist between their eyes. No, no, no. You know right, what I'm talking right. about? No, I have that shirt. Like, I have that shirt. I forget shirt. the quote, but that's you're, the you're gist of it. You're real close. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, dude, because I, there, as, a, as someone that grew up with football, rugby, you know, boxing, wrestling, basically I had to seek rites of passage into manhood. Everywhere. Every, you had to seek it out. It wasn't finding me. Um, now, luckily, I had some pretty blue collar roots, like where, you know, my grandfather was a prison warden and chief of police. My <laughs> other grandfather was in Top Gun school before that was a thing. Right. So like, I had some role models that like, you know, like, hey, you know, here's right and wrong. But um, I just know, you know, going out in the business world, it's just like, you know. I could probably double leg you pretty easily. You got a pretty skinny neck. Now, I mean, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking for legal reasons, of course. <laughs> but to your point, you're like, yeah, you guys have to remember that there's consequences for actions and they don't have to be litigation. Right. Right. And that's funny. Like, I grew up the opposite. I didn't, I mean, I had people telling me right and wrong, but I didn't have any male role models mm-hmm. putting me in my place when I was wrong. Yeah. And that affected me. Like I, I was a little bit uncoachable in football and wrestling, mm-hmm. and I became uncoachable in the Marine Corps. And to this day, I'm, I'm a little uncoachable. <laughs> like, Which it, is ironic because you're a coach. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, you want to talk about some hypocrisy sometimes. No. It's like I, I do struggle with that. But, but that's the reason. So the Marine Corps was my chance, I thought, yeah. where I could find that yeah. adult who would keep me in my place. No, you're not the first person I've talked to that left the Marine Corps with the intention of finding uh, the best of the best and to be led by good men, and then coming up short in your search. Right. You know, that's and you know, I've talked to really good men. Some of the best Marines I've talked to, they're like, "Yeah, was a little disappointed with what I found in there." Not saying anything about, bad about the Marine Corps, but I'm just saying, well, the experience. There's a common experience. Well, right, and 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 I take a lot of accountability for. Yeah. A lot of choices I made in the core also that that didn't help me maybe connect with the right leaders at the same time. Mm. So it it definitely wasn't all the core. There's definitely things I could have done better yeah, or, yeah. or differently to make my experience better as well. Well, and I, I like how that extreme ownership mentality, you know, because my opinion of you was after practices, you would ask us for feedback on what you could have done better. And you're like, I'm not coachable. I'm like, you literally are coach. <laughs> to me, my experience with you, I mean, maybe this is just your stage of life where I met you at. You're like, hey, what could I have done here? What could I have done there? It was very cerebral. I'm like, not looking at yourself as if there's damaged feelings. It would be damaged feelings that we were too nice. Right. Like that would, that would have been it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which is, uh, I think a lost art for, for ownership because, you know, one of my monikers is that everything is my fault, whether mm. it's good or bad, doesn't matter. Like if it's, if it's good, okay, great. Then I can like blame myself for good things happening. If it's bad, okay, what can I have done? You know what I mean? Even if it was like something outside of my control, like, I don't know, someone gets hit by a car, like, okay, well I could have warned that person to be careful driving or mm. I could have had, you know, gone a different route. Now, whether it's true or not, that belief serves me in such a way that I can sleep better knowing that, I, you know, I, at least I know who to blame. <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, that that experience in the Marine Corps led you, you know, in some way, shape, or form back into wrestling. So 
from a wrestling standpoint, not only do you coach at Ephrata High School in South Central Pennsylvania, but you're also a Greco coach, Greco-Roman Olympic-style coach. Right. Can you talk about the experience and how those two integrate and, and what you've learned doing both? Yeah, so so when, when I was a senior in high school, the Marine Corps team came in. They were Greco only. They came in, did a little demonstration for us, and that's kind of when I decided, hey, this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to go in the Marines. I'm going to wrestle for them. Uh, that didn't happen because I was overseas a lot. So I get out and I get right back into wrestling. Um, I start coaching uh, the elementary team at Ephrata. Mm-hmm. I'm volunteering there for a few years with all three levels. And I start competing in the freestyle and Greco styles. I didn't wrestle that except one time in high school. It wasn't widely popular at Ephrata. We only had two guys that really did well at it back when I was in school. And then I, uh, so I just started teaching myself. And that's kind of like my whole life. I, I just have to figure these things out on my own. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching myself and traveling all over the state to find people who knew about it. And uh, took a couple trips to different schools and coached for a long time. And when the effort job came open, I'd been brainstorming this for about five years with a lot of people in the area that would come back. If, if, I, if any of us got the job, we were all coming back and coaching again. Uh, okay. Right? Because we knew we wanted to help Effort to be better, you know, than, than, than what they are. And uh, so it opens up and I go hit up all these people that were, yeah, if you get that job, we're all coming. And nobody came. Nobody came. And, and I mean, these were some, some very close wrestling acquaintances of mine who, who I was counting on. Um, but luckily... The guys I have are great. We made it work with, we, we just, you know, like you said earlier while we were working out, you just move forward with what you get. And, and we, we made a lot with uh, the people who were there. Greg Larson is a great guy who has weathered some real bad years there. And um, he's one of the reasons I'm having success. So, so I'm involved with them. I was working with Steel Mat Club over in Berks, which you're familiar with. What, what years Blanc were you? It's yeah. after Artie Walsh and Nick Hodgkins left. So you, I just missed you because yeah. I used to practice with Artie and Nick. Right. And Nick came up. I'll tell you a little brief story about Nick Hodgkins. Before he did his run in the state finals and that whole thing, yeah, he was just a really hard-working, like, kind of new wrestler. And there's another guy, Anthony Frost. You heard of that name. Anthony went like six and like 20 one year, and the next year he went like 35 and 6. Wow. Just And he was the guy that would run through a wall to outwork someone. I actually, I remember distinctly kicking his ass in practice before. Like, I was like, oh, I can beat him. And I was up by like 10 points, and he beat me, squeaked out one point at the end because he just gassed me. <laughs> so he and Nick were teammates. Yeah. Anyway, enough about so that. I'm over Great at, program. I'm, I'm over at Steelman with those, those two guys. That's funny. It was uh, Artie and Nick as they were older, they'd usually only come for the live wrestling portion. They didn't want to come in for the technique and kind of called them out on it and said, you got to be here for it all. Or, you know, you're yeah. not welcome because you got a lot of young people here looking up to you guys and sure. they're going to do what you do. And funny enough, then they stopped coming and we, we built from there a uh, steel mat club up to where we had some Jan Johnson was my first all American in Greco. Uh, linebacker for Penn State. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I coached with his 
uh, dad and uncle. Yeah. Over there. They were on the staff and Matt Fittery was on staff for yep. Calico. Okay. So we had a lot of guys go through there. And then um, when Mr. Henson, part of the Brute Adidas group over there, passed away. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the gentleman who took ownership of the building pushed us out. And they wanted to use that space for production and stuff like that. So we had to find a new home. And that's when steel kind of fell apart. And it was during that time that law approached me and asked me if I wanted to come over and help out there. So me and Matt Fittery took took what was working at Steel and we went over to uh, Law, okay. Blackster Alliance Wrestling. And we I've been there for, I don't know, maybe it's nine or ten years now. <coughs> I think it's nine. Man, I'm getting old. Well, right? Law, law didn't exist. Like, I'm getting these flashbacks, really vivid memories of that brute room. Like yeah. what a great opportunity because they they were getting top three in the country, and you talk about marketing expense, right? You know, you you sponsor Steel Mac Club that's getting top three in the country. Everyone's look at their bags, their headgear. Yeah, like, we had a nice situation going there for a long time, and now they're back up and running. Okay, sorta. Uh, I I think it's kind of taken a back seat. It it was running out of Alvernia. Yeah, wasn't Stellar Train? Well, now Stellar Train's there, yeah. so I think. That's kind of over, like, so I think they've backed off a of steel and they, they're embracing stellar training. I, I listened to a podcast where Chance maybe broke the news of, like, what was going on behind yeah. the scenes. And one of the, like, one of the most powerful wrestling podcasts I've ever listened to. I have to find it. I'll send it to you. Yeah. And I didn't know half the stuff. Now, he was, you know, gave a lot of credit to the local guys, the Slanko boys he wrestled with at, at uh, Lock Haven. Right. Dan Neff and them. Yeah, yeah. But at the end... The podcast host asked him if he could recommend one person that he would interview next, like pay it forward. Now, this guy is, has interviewed Jordan Burroughs, and Jordan Burroughs might have recommended interview Chance. Right. You know, big names. Chance goes, interview Chris Polanka. Huh. He, he's the number one person I would want you to interview. Interesting. And I was like, I know him. He was my coach before. Yeah. Like, it's such a cool, full circle world, like how it evolves that way. Anyway. It is. So, yeah, so I've been with Law Sense and, uh, you know, I mainly focus on the Greco. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dabbled with the women's wrestling a couple different times. and We we started a program when we were running out of F&M for the women. Mm-hmm. Um, now Kevin Franklin has just taken that He's, to a new level. He's doing a great job with it. And, of course, women's wrestling's just the, the most – it's the biggest growing sport right now in the country. I'm glad you say that because there was something I read or heard. Now I have a daughter, right? Right. So like you have you have girls too, and they're a little older than my daughter. My daughter's eight months. Not I can't get her wrestling shoes yet. She doesn't quite walk, but <laughs> I I think I think so hard. I'm like you know I want to introduce you to Kevin Franklin when you can talk and walk, learn how to wrestle, just get a D1 scholarship. I'm not asking for much. Just go <laughs> D1. Like I don't want to pay for your college. You just wrestle your way through college. A guy can hope. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so it was helping with the, the women's wrestling but it's always been greco for me and really it's kind of one of those things where i was out at the open i think it was 99 and i competed in freestyle and i lost a close match to a full-time dave schultz club wrestler which was Box catcher? Out of, no what this is well after right so it's the Too dave soon. schultz club and out running out of pen Oh, That's okay. what UPenn yep. used to be. Yeah, yeah. And I lost to that guy 3-1. And in the wrestlebacks, 
I was on, I was beating a guy, and then after the break, I ended up getting pinned. So it, it, I wrestled well for the amount I had to train. I, you know, I had to work 40, 50 hours a week and find my training time where I could. Um, right. So I, I was, I was okay with experiences. I'm walking out. I, I was looking at the brackets, and I noticed how fewer wrestlers were in the Greco bracket. Uh, the year prior, in '98, I took third in Greco and freestyle in the AAU Grand Nationals, which is, you know, really, really low key compared to USA wrestling. Okay, um, but it, it was still a big deal. I wrestled some top guys. I wrestled some Cubans, and uh, it was an okay, okay tournament for me. And I realized, well, if I took third in both styles, and I don't even know much Greco, what would happen if I just immersed myself in Greco? Mm. How much better could I become? Right. Because freestyle, I'm only going to get little bits better. Right? Yeah. Freestyle is, they're different sports. It's not, I look at them as like the rule set makes it such a different thing. Now, I mean, you have more insight into that. But my analogy would be from a jujitsu standpoint, if someone's supposed to be the best in the world at both the gi and no gi at the same time. Right. Like, yeah, they're both jujitsu, but I don't know. Right. Maybe it's, that's how you see it too. Well, it's kind of like, so freestyle is so similar to folk style. So you have the premise. Mm, so yeah. you've been doing leg grabbing <laughs> for, for all your life. Yeah. So your, your, your ability to take steps forward are small steps. Okay. You're making small, what I call Russian adjustments. You know, the Russians are very particular about finger placement, hand placement, supination, you know, pronation, all this stuff. Where Greco, nobody knows even a stance. So I'm like, so when I coach Greco to a new to a new athlete, they're amazed. It they're they're so excited because they're learning again. Yeah, you know they're learning yep. a brand like you said a brand new sport. So they're able to jump levels very quickly, and and there's so much motivation and excitement. And then it it gives them a whole nother whole nother facet to their folk and freestyle like now they know how to defend throws if they need a throw they have it they know how to position and hand fight much better than mm. when when they didn't do greco so so yeah i i the i do greco the f- the first reason was because i saw that i could grow in it faster and in our country there's less people competing in it, and I, I would give myself a better chance to make a world or Olympic team potentially. Um, and as a coach, it's the same thing. Like I love being able to educate kids. Everybody knows freestyle in this country. Everybody knows folk style. And, and I can still coach those styles. That's why I coach high school still. Mm-hmm. But the Greco piece, there's just not a lot of people that are doing it. So it gives me a, a little corner of the world where I can really – help a lot of young people develop to a new level. That's a, you know, you said something earlier that I never thought of before. And it was a correlation between people making large jumps in learning and them getting emotionally excited about it. Right. Like I remember vividly starting Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and getting my first stripe on my white belt and being like, Yes, like I might as well go buy a motorcycle. I'm so badass right now. I was just so <laughs> over the moon excited. And then you stick with it for 10 years and you get people getting their brown belt being more like relieved, like, okay, like, wow, I thought I was going to be a purple belt forever. Right. You know? And it's like that same thing. Like you just, 
the rate of improvement, the rate of learning to be able to facilitate that same excitement, student after student, wrestler after wrestler, it's probably like probably like a thrill to it, you know, and there is a system to it. There is a system, man. I'll tell you, it was kind of cool this week. I got to run a couple freestyle sessions by myself with our large group. And uh, I, I try to let the – I stay for all the practices because I think the more coaches we have in a room, the better our kids are going to get. Mm-hmm. So, But this week, uh, the, the, the head coaches had to be somewhere, so I got to run these rooms, and I was just like, all right. And I just, I just have a different energy about things. I don't, I'm not any better or worse, but I love – having the kids excited. Yeah. I want them to be enjoying themselves. I want them to be able to enjoy hard work. Like, yes. like it's, it's not like we screw around. It, we, we, we set these high bars, you know, like I show a move, they go out and do the move that they always do. I bring them back in, I say, I didn't show that. Why are you doing what you always do? Who's a state champ? And you know, no hands go. All right, well, this stuff is what state champs do. So I want to show you that. Go try that, you know, and to get them on board and change their thinking. And I love that kind of stuff, you know. I feel like the phrase, be careful what you wish for, is important to goal setting. Because if you have too small of a goal, you might just get it. And and what you're saying is like, hey, the goal here is to like have fun working hard, be dedicated to the process, but don't lose sight. Like it's not just a state – like we want to be state champs, right? We're all shaking this, this large aspiration and working hard and having fun doing it. But once you get to college, guess what? Don't be focused on becoming a national champ. Be an Olympic champ. When you give people that outlet for the ultimate goal of wrestling is to be the best in the world. You know? And I think the dreaming thing is so important because it's not just wrestling. It's anything you do. I agree. I agree. Um, Talking with one of my young athletes who made districts this year. Made districts at a weight class above what he wrestled all year. Because a better guy dropped down to his weight class so he had to go up. And he still makes the district tournament, goes 0-2, disappointed, ready to get into training. He's training with me like nine times a week. He, he didn't miss one practice or match this season. He's my only Ironman winner this year. 82 practices and competitions. What's an Ironman winner? Doesn't miss anything. Shows up day after day after day after it, day. And now, he can be hurt, but if he's injured, you can't win it. So it's it's one of those things like oh. it, it, it's only a guy who that, there's no shade or shame a for anybody injury. who gets injured, but that's the bar. But part of wrestling is to, is injury in, prevention. Injury prevention. So that's you, part of the you, game. This is a kid. I have so many stories about this young man. He's really fun, and he's he's eating everything I'm feeding him. Yeah. So his mom told me said. Brody came out the other night and he gave me his remote. He said, I can't trust myself with this, so I, I need to get to sleep on time because I got to get up early in the morning. As a high school student? This, he's only a freshman. Jeez. He's only a freshman. So where we were actually going with the story is I, he, he said, I've told him he's going to be a three-time state medalist. And he says, so do you think my goal next year, I, my goal's top four in the state. I said, well, top four, then why wouldn't it just be gold? Like, it's just one more match. It's just one more match. To be in the finals. And then it's just one more match to be gold. So why wouldn't we shoot for gold? Because my thing in school, I wasn't a great wrestler. I only wrestled four years. My goal was to be a state medalist. I was a state qualifier. I went 0-2. 
in the process, I became a district champion in, in a, in a semi-weak weight class, but there were some really good guys in there that went on to wrestle D1. Um, if I would have dumbed it down to what my coaches wanted for me, well, just be happier starting. Just do your best. You know, but I had a fanatical junior high coach who told me I could be all these other things. So I'm the same way. Like, you got to set the goal high because if you fail, you'll probably achieve more than, than if you, you had set a realistic goal. Yes. Screw realistic. What is realistic? What does that mean? What I choose to be realistic. Yeah. So I, I always hung around state caliber guys and trained yeah. at a state caliber level. I was never state. I mean, I qualified for state, so I guess I was state caliber maybe. But uh, – yeah, if I wouldn't have trained that way, I wouldn't have. I probably wouldn't have made it out of sectionals to be realistic. If you want to be realistic, or you could have quit and be like, "Oh, if I'm training that way, my motivation, and my excitement, and that, you just lose steam." Like, right? I've seen so many people that they've they've set a goal, achieve a. I'm one of them. I, I my goal my senior year of high school, become a college wrestler. Guess what happened after I got that acceptance letter and I got recruited? I just went. I didn't think about that till this moment. I'm sitting here. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, why did I start the season like 20 and four and was, you know, oh, I'm like, I spent all this time on Penn Live looking at the rankings and I'm yeah. in the rankings. As soon as that college acceptance letter came, I did not perform as well as I know I could have. Wow. And it's one of those things. It's my, my fault for having poor vision. Hmm. You know, but to your point, um, why not? If you're going to be top four, why not be first? Right. So he heard it, that and he's like, and so now that's. That's his blinders. Yeah. You know, it's I'm going gold. What? Um, I think one of the things that I really think admirable is that, you know, your goal was to win on a world level. Mm. And whether it was probable or improbable, it doesn't matter. The probability is, is inane because you, the way you approach preparation was like whatever the chances are, I want to make sure that I do my parts so that fate can side with me. And I, I think there's a lot into it. I'm going to break what I 30 minutes in. I've been doing my best not to blurt it out before this point. But one of the things that you used to say that I didn't realize was a stoic truth. Like the easiest, if someone said, "What's the what's stoicism all about?" It's attitude and effort. You know, controlling that which you can control, disregarding that which you can't. The only thing you can control, to sum it down, is attitude and effort, or your thoughts, your emotions, your behaviors. Really, your reactions to external stimuli, your reactions as far as what happens to you. It's not the cards that you're dealt. It's how you play the hand. They, there's so many ways to describe what Stoicism is and these ancient Greeks and Romans that they taught us about not only masculinity but leadership and success and virtue. It's I can show up each one day at a time, have a good attitude, have a winning mindset, and put forth my best effort, whatever that looks like at the time, and then – a management principle of Kaizen, which is eternal improvement, I can get 1% or 1% better every day. And over the course of a year, you get 365% better. Right. So like you posting attitude and effort and then training your ass off, working a job, being a coach, and also chasing a dream with relentless passion. I'm like, what the, what the hell is my excuse? Why can't I? I can do those things. I can set a goal. I can work harder to do that. The achievement of the goal is... A, probably a by like an unnecessary byproduct like whether or not you achieve it like yes it would be great to achieve all goals but the daring greatly and the striving greatly is how i think people should be measured 
Because your your wrestler, whether he gets state gold or not, is going to be way better for it just through what he did with the Iron Man through having that vision, I think. That's my pedestal about stoicism. Yeah, I I can't remember where I stole attitude and effort. It was years ago. I mean, I mean, when I say years ago, yeah, man, a couple decades ago probably. And it was one of my main things on my first coach's card I wrote up to talk about at a parents' meeting. And it was about that success does is not equal to winning. That's that's the first part that everybody needs to understand. That hard work will lead to success somehow, some way, some form of success. And that and that when we leave the room, we got better at something. That was the beginning stages of attitude and effort. And then, of course, over the years, as I've studied more and read more, I realized that that's, a, like you said, a stoic principle. Uh, Deadpool's stolen it now from me. I've heard David. Really? Yeah, Deadpool always says uh, maxim, maximum effort with, uh, yeah, he says it right before they jump out the plane in the first. I think in the first, second one. Okay. When he's with like X-Force or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, he says something like that. So he's used it. I've seen David Taylor posting it all over online. He probably reads my posts a lot. That's, he got it from you. Um, well, that's what I tell everybody anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really is everything for my boys. Uh, and, and like what you said, we I, I try to teach my boys don't leave any stones unturned. And mm-hmm. The biggest thing with attitude and effort is what you're doing outside the room. Yeah. Uh, like in the room is the easy part. To be able to go hard for an hour and a half, two hours, that's the easiest part of your day. What did you eat when you got up? What did you put in your mind all day? What did you read? Who would you hang out with? What's the diet? What you, you know, I mean... That, so just to show up and train, man, that's easy. You see everybody at the gym training, but what are they doing at home? Your student you know? giving up his controllers for video games to say, "I need to sleep." That is that was just that was that was his TV. That was just his TV control. Okay, it like because he likes watching sports, and he'd fall asleep to it. He said, "Nah, I, I can't trust my. I need to get to like, bed earlier." I hope that wrestler understands how profound of a step that is. That impulse control, that delay of gratification to prioritize that which is good for you than that which is comfortable for you. More of that, please. (laughs) Yeah, I have another wrestler who graduated uh, last year, Austin Brass, and he's wrestling at Messiah right now. He was another one. uh, You know, he would always be at our morning workouts. He was a great leader. Um, He would be up doing his meal prep, and he would do a certain number of push-ups and sit-ups before he ever came to our lifting session. And he had a, he had a pretty good season up at Masai. He started a couple times, and then as the season wore on, he was dealing with some injuries and got knocked out of the lineup, but had a great freshman campaign up there. Masai is a good program. Brunk runs a great, great there. program up there. I've stolen a lot of stuff from him, how he runs his program. I'm, I'm an E-Town Blue Jay, Blue Jay alumni, and I hate to give, but I give credit where credit's <laughs> due. I don't know. We, we might have beaten them once, but they were always top in the country and just no matter what. But the thing I liked about them the most is that they were like a good team. Mm-hmm. Like their off-the-mat stuff was like unimpeachable character. Yeah. 
You know, I really respected that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, one of the things you said that makes me think of a business analogy is, uh, so I, I left wrestling, got into business. I'm not going to go too deep into about me, but one of the things, um, you know, I, I love to read, try to be, always be a student in the game, whatever you're playing. And uh, so there's a couple guys, Grant Cardone and Alex Ramosi are in the, spa- the space. And they talk about 10x, the 10x principle. And it's like whatever you think is enough of an input to get the goal you want, just add an extra zero. So like the idea would be someone <clears> – <throat> let's just say you're going to do flyers and you want someone to show up to your business. Um, Alex tells a story how he had a, a new gym and he had a mentor and he goes, all right, well, I did 300 flyers and no one showed up. And he goes – "Okay, he goes, his mentor goes, you, you did 300 flyers and no one showed up. He goes, yep, yep, it didn't, doesn't work. The guy goes, I do 10,000 as a trial run to see which one works better. And then I do 2,000 a day after that. He goes, what? He goes, you did not do nearly enough work to determine if this was a successful campaign or not. <laughs> you know, I remember one time being like, I can't do 25 phone calls a day. And then I watched somebody do 150. Right. And I go, oh, oh, yeah, I can do 25 phone calls a day. It's really not that bad. Right. Um, it's the four-minute mile principle. It's like it's impossible until someone did it, and then somebody did it like three weeks later again. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Was, um, Mike Lammer wrestled at E-Town as well. He did. Right? Now yeah. he's at Alvernia. And he also trains yeah. at Gracie 717. Shout yeah. out to Mike. Good and, and an Ephrata alumni. Ephrata. And a Steel alumni. Yep. So Mike, when he assisted, he assisted me for a little bit as a volunteer, and one of his things that he brought from E-Town was always push that wall back a little further every day, push the wall back a little further. And uh, I think that's kind of that same principle where, huh? yeah, the four-minute mile, as soon as someone sees it can be broken, now they realize, I can do it. It just takes, it takes someone one time, you know, and then everybody can do it. So... That's kind of what we did at Effort. I think we we finally got a state qualifier two seasons ago after a seventeen year drought. No state 17. qualifiers. Yeah, you got a program like Northampton. Yes. This, listen to this. Yep. District eleven. I believe it's now. I don't remember if it's thirty or forty. So so you have to check this. It's thirty or forty years with a state medalist. What? Yeah. Every year? I can't remember if it's 30 or 40, but That's yes, in a row, consecutive. That's incredible. And most years, it's it's more than one. Okay? So yeah. we, went a, we went a drought 17 years without even someone showing up to states. That's, that's how, how can that be acceptable right. for, for a school district? So anyways, we finally break it. Two years ago with Jimmy Ellis, who's wrestling up at Lycoming, started for them all season okay. as a freshman. Yeah. And uh, and then this year, we have another one. Now, both these wrestlers, Jimmy went 1-2 and two last year, and my guy Tanner McCracken this year went 0-2. Oh but here we are. Now, now it's becoming consistent showing up. Now I got a guy talking about winning it. I've yeah. never had anybody talk about winning it. You know, but now they're seeing that state... We, can, we have a program that can make it. 
And these two guys, this is this is what my boys are looking at. I'm more committed than those two guys. Mm. So states is happening. What color is my medal? That's what that's what I'm in charge of now. I'm gonna get the gold. So it's it's really neat. I, you know, whether you call it brainwashing or social conditioning, it's what I'm doing. I well, want them to good leaders create other good leaders. Right? You know, good leader like in order to be a leader, you have to have followers. In order to be a good leader, you have to have other leaders. You see the the thing all the time. Average teams are player-led, good teams, or coach-led, the best teams are. No, no, the other way around. It gets to the point where it's the players got to lead. You got to develop the leaders to the guys on the team being able to lead that team, you know? There's a... To reference philosophy again, <clears throat> definitely not going to claim this person as someone I've met or like a close family member, but we do have the same last name. James Stockdale was the first, he was the first person to drop a bomb in Vietnam and his plane went down. He was also an 07, so he's a high ranking military official. Why he was dropping a bomb himself, I don't know. America's crazy and you gotta love history. He did. He spent seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hotel as a POW, highest ranking military official in history to be a POW, also the longest tenure of a POW. His wife, Sybil, thought he was a goner and dead. He kept the morale of the, one of the largest POW camps during the war using Morse code. Tap, tap, tap. Like He just had people communicating through the walls. Towards the end, towards what we know of as the end, the Vietnamese want to put them on broadcast television to show them how great they're treating people and that this is, you know, the hotel, right? They It's kind of tongue-in-cheek description of it. Right. So he smashes his face into an electrical box before they put him on TV because he's like, I'm not going to dry snitch on my, my country and say, they're yeah, everything's great. I'm not a traitor. Um, but before that, he, he took a razor blade and cut his scalp so he's too bloody that he couldn't... He couldn't do that. So they're like, okay, we'll put a hat on you, put a wig so they can't see your hair. He, that's when he smashed his face. And they're like, I, we can't break this guy. And so I love hearing stories about people like that. Just so I'm going to share my last name. Not, don't know him. Maybe my <laughs> grandfather would know him. They kind of were far, Stockdale's farmers out in the Midwest. I like to think he knew him. Anyway, <laughs> the, guy, the guy is long gone. But I like to think that if people could survive that hellscape <laughs> – Right. What am I doing complaining about right. my HVAC? I have, I, can, I have AC and heat. I have food on the table. I can see my family. <laughs> right. He couldn't. Right. He could never walk, stand straight up again after that. They put him in these iron bindings. And what he did when he came back, people didn't know he was still alive, but he came back and he got his doctorate in philosophy in stoicism at Stanford and ran for vice president in 92. Hmm. And it's like he should be dead, but he's not. And he ran for vice president. So hearing stories like that, like you said, like it's so important who people associate with, what mm. stories and beliefs they tell themselves, and who they look up to for leadership. Right? G- being a good example, when you going back in our conversation, when you told Nick and Artie, hey you guys, there's a lot of eyeballs watching you. You gotta do this. And they're like, nope. But then the program Stellar Trained, right? It, it evolved into that. And they had the OW and double A AA and triple A. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. You know, and 
I, anyway, that's my rant about stoicism. But it makes me think it's like virtue ethics. That's what I think a lot of our society and culture needs to remember is that why we be, you know, one of the great things of the American dream was if you acted virtuously, you could then achieve things. Where in other countries, didn't matter how you acted, the government's going to oppress you and you can't do anything. Right. Right. I think a good piece that goes along with that, if you're looking back at that, it's, it's we, in the past, we were more doers, mm. you know, less emotional. And we, we didn't call it stoicism. We just called it a hard work ethic. Uh, you see it with the Amish and the Mennonites still. Yep. There's not a lot of feelings involved in what they're doing. It's this is what we do. You don't see them blowing their hands on a cold morning when they're riding their scooter or their bike to, to whatever job they got to go to early in the morning in the dark, right? They just do it because that's what you do. I love how cold plunge is making a huge uh, movement. The idea of people taking cold baths and ice oh, baths. Oh, right, right, right. The cold plunge. Yeah. But what you said about the Amish, they don't need cold plunge. It's called go to freaking work. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get the cold <laughs> right. plunge if you go out on your scooter and get to where you need to go. But the, the science behind it, right, is that your brain produces more natural dopamine and endorphins when you do hard things and overcome challenges. Do hard things. That's a book, right? I don't know. It could be. It is. Quinn if it's not, we should write on to it. I haven't read it yet. I don't know who the author is. Well, I have to look it up. Do hard things. Yeah. Your and, brain and rewards you that. for yeah. doing hard things. Right. And doing hard things looks different for everybody else. Exactly. Like, but, but do whatever the hard thing is you're supposed to do. Like regardless how you feel, the work still needs doing. One of my favorite things about the space of entrepreneurship and marketing is people are obsessed with their morning routine. I need to meditate for this many minutes. I need to read this many. I need to, I need to light these candles in a certain way and pray to this deity. How about you get up, you drink coffee, and get to fucking work? You know, Or whatever it is. Or whatever or it whatever is. Or whatever it is, but don't get hung up on the dogma of it. Don't, do not. Like that's, that's what ruins everything. Yeah. Well, religions, philosophies, routines is when, I mean, we have another name for it. It's called OCD. Sure. Right? So I, I, I really, you know, this morning was actually a bad morning for me where I didn't get up on the alarm. I always have two set. I got up in between. Yeah. And I was like, ah. so I quick got dressed, went down, and I didn't have time to do my journaling. And it was no big deal. You know, right. I'll, I'll do a night journal tonight if I remember. And if I don't, I write in it, hey, no entry, running late. It's not the end of the world and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And I don't mean it's not like a dick and knock on routines. But my thing is how you react to right. missing your routine right. is what matters. Right. So, right. Or ruin the whole day. It could. Yeah. For, for some, some people, people, it can right? ruin the whole day. And if I miss my routine, yeah, I, we've talked about it several times well, you just, now that's done and now I move forward. Uh, my girlfriend right now gets pretty frustrated with how I can compartmentalize <laughs> things in life. And the, the better she gets to know me, she realizes, she realizes that's a survival tactic. Oh, yeah. You learn it in the Marines for a lot of reasons, but I, I knew this way before. Like, yeah. So I'm just seeing my mom get beat up, but now we're going to Thanksgiving dinner with all the family and, I, and everybody's acting normal. So I see, oh, Oh, so, we, so mom didn't get beat up. All right, let's eat, eat turkey, right? No big deal. Yeah. And you learn. You learn whatever you need to to get through. But it serves me well. 
It serves a, a, a hard, you know, not, and I ain't even going to say it's a horrible situation. I don't look at any of that as anything bad. I look, I, I look back on those times as just moments where other men, and there weren't a lot of men in my family, other men let me and my mom down. I was a boy. You know, I couldn't do anything right. for a long time. But what I learned from that serves me well now where I don't get hung up on on a, on an argument. I don't get hung up. If, if I say something wrong, sorry, are we going to ruin the rest of the day over my misstep? Because I'm quick to say, hey, my fault. Right. And I will try not to do it again. I didn't mean to cause these feelings and I'm going to work on it. But I guarantee I'm going to mess up more. That is part of uh, growth and learning and, and being human is understanding fragility of like, I will not be perfect. <laughs> I, I know that I am not perfect. And I have come to terms with corrective behavior. <laughs> Thank you for your patience for forgiving. Or, or not. Like, or maybe you don't have the patience for this. And then... And then we need to know that though. Right. Right? Like these are the standard, like you tell me what your standard is. I can't mess up. Well, then we won't work. Right. But if you can handle me messing up and admitting it and, and making an effort, then we can work, you know, or, you know, whatever. Well, it, it's the difference between productive and destructive conflict. Conflict can be productive. I will admit, I watched Roadhouse for the first time yesterday. Okay. Really? I want to watch it again today. You have to. It's one of the best movies maybe ever made, and I've watched a ton of movies. <laughs> All right? Freaking Dalton, okay? Everyone's like, you love beating people up. He's like, no, I like de-escalating bullies. Right. And I think that applies to the situation that you're talking about. It's like Dalton has seen some shit. He's been through a lot, and if you don't know the Roadhouse analogy – Sean does. I'm glad I didn't, <laughs> didn't go over his head. I did oh, yeah. before yesterday. Dalton gets a philosophy degree from NYU. So he's like the cooler. He's like the cool guy who's a bouncer. And he's trying to basically – it's like some pseudo mob. And this guy is kind of a, a bully. He's out on a war path to hurt everyone. And Dalton's whole thing is like I got some people I care about. I have a job to do. It's nothing personal. Keep it cool and we won't have any problems. But if you don't keep it cool, I will literally rip your throat out with my bare hands. <laughs> he kind of let him know. He let him know. Yeah. And, you know, he warned him. He, he said, warned, hey. Yeah. So I think if people were more like Dalton, maybe not ripping throats. I don't even know that it's physically possible. But you know what? <laughs> Movies were better then. Movies were better in the 80s. I grew up in a good, good era. No doubt. No doubt. We had Steven Seagal and... And Patrick Swayze ripping throats out and dancing with people. Jimmy Christmas. <laughs> All over the place, that guy. Um, so to, to, to hone it back in right. you know, between Marines and growing up with the domestic violence and wrestling coaching, how do you continually grow and develop like your values and your beliefs? And like what is the vehicle? Like are you still like, – you're a student of the game, right? You watch the film. You – Constantly, you know, working out and learning, learning new nutrition and learning new workout routines and rehabilitation and preventative maintenance and what to eat, what not to eat. But when it comes to what to think and what not to think, how are you as a student in that? And how does that look like today? Tell you, I, I, I fell into like the natural order of things growing up in Lancaster County. Uh, 
go to college, go to work, or go to the service after high school, right? Right. Get out of high school, get married, get a house, have kids, go to church, right? And I kind of fell into that that pattern of what the status quo is in, in, in this county. Um, and when I... Uh, when I started working at an Episcopalian church as a property manager, mm-hmm. I started hearing a lot of other viewpoints. It's the first time I probably hung out with a lot of uh, liberals and uh, a lot of homosexuals and a lot of homeless people working yeah. in Lancaster City. And just my eyes opened up more. Uh, I, I never had an issue with race or anything because of the military and having some family members of color. Yeah. But... uh but I was definitely a redneck conservative and definitely racist. Effort was definitely a racist town and probably still is a little bit. Sure. Even though we're much more, uh, there's many more minorities within our, our, our town now, but it wasn't that way for a long time. Right. So I had, the, I had those viewpoints growing up. So once... Once I started working there, I started seeing things from different perspectives and also socioeconomic differences. Like I always viewed rich people as bad people. Like they're okay. just, you know, because I grew up poor, you know, lower middle class. Yeah. Not poor, lower middle class. And I had to disdain for rich people just because I didn't know them. Mm-hmm. But as I got to know them, I, I found a lot of them were hard workers, you know, and worked really hard. There were, you know, some who were the rich people maybe you don't like. Yeah. But some Even of the, the hardworking rich people don't like those people. Yeah, exactly. You know, who yeah. come from money. So it was, uh, it was, so that was the beginning of maybe being woke. And it was pretty late in life for me, I'm ashamed to say. You know, I was very sheltered and, and blinders on my eyes. I almost grew up Mennonite pretty much yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And uh, as I got away from the, from my church that I felt was pretty, like close-minded and, and cultish in, a, in some ways, not in a bad way, just they always wanted you to be with each other, mm. you know? I was able to open up and start studying more things like their viewpoint. If you're studying that, well, then that's the devil type stuff. You know, that ain't good to be like studying those things, right? Interesting, okay. Yeah, and I think a lot of, a lot of leaders fear those kind of things. You know, don't, don't go studying all that stuff. This is the way and... Mm. Almost like don't worry about it. Don't misuse your imagination. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And so as I'm as I'm learning more things, I'm learning that there's a lot of ways to look at the same God. You know, there's a lot of ways to look at the same universe from different viewpoints. And and I've just I've just really opened up my mind to understanding more things and not being closed minded about anything. I ain't saying I don't believe in God. I ain't saying. I'm definitely not saying Christians are good or bad. I'm saying I found things that serve me better and where I come from and how I how I want to be productive in life. And the way I want to be productive in life is that I always want to be getting better. Um, so you, I always want to be improving. Right. I want to be looking after my family members. Yeah. And then I'll branch out in the community. And and I I look at coaching athletics as part of my family. Okay. You know, and my community all in one. Yeah. Where I can I can give young people things to think about 
always with the disclaimer. Make sure you're talking to your parents about this. Always. I'm not trying to lead you anywhere and taking you away from anything. Talk with your parents about it. Seek. And the main thing is I want them to learn that you can work hard, you can be unemotional, you can believe in your God, and you can have lots of success doing those things. Yes. But be convicted in those things. You know, stick to your guns and keep learning and, and keep questioning. That's the biggest thing our youth, I think, in the school system are having a hard time doing, asking questions. I think you hit the nail on the head between the difference between being certain and being convicted. So like the opposite of faith as a philosophy student is certainty, right? It's okay to ask questions and have doubts, but you still have to act and behave in a way as if what you're what you believe in what you believe, but you can always learn something new, you can always be wrong, there could always be some right. room for error. That's the difference between in my opinion between faith and certainty. Certainty is like your old church was was you don't need to think of any other outside perspectives. Right. You can still be a Christian, but read about you know the Muslim faith, read about Judaism, read about what astrophysics. Who knows? As I, I don't know if it's happened for you, but as I study religions and philosophies, you see the universal ties through them all. Of course, they, they all right. I mean, look, pick your religion. I'll use Christianity for an easy example. You know, God made man in his image. That means he made poor man in his image. That means he made black man in his image. That means he made, he made all man. He didn't say which man. He made every human being in his image. So who are you to say that person's the devil or not the devil? Because we're all the same inherently. Right. Okay, Christians, like there goes your piety bullshit out the window. Sorry for swearing. But like, okay, I, I don't, I, I could reference another text. I have I've been lucky enough to meet with people that do philosophy of science for a living, and in physics, um, it's like a twin slit experiment is a is a quantum physics, like a theoretical phys physics uh, experiment, which basically says this: um, things behave differently when they're being watched or when they're being observed. So, um, particles go through an accelerator. Blah 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 blah. When they're not looking, the recorded data means they go this path. When they are being observed, they go through another path. Like that's just matter. So, this, so long story short, um, the physics professor and philosophy professor that I learned from in college has this theory called relational block world, which means people exist in relate things exist only insofar as a relation to other things. So. What that means is, you know, if you believe something and you have a conviction, your relationship to that God or that belief changes who you are because of how of what you're paying attention to or who you're paying attention to. So the idea is, and they might be pissed that I'm taking the science part and putting any humanitarian spin on it, but it's like who you surround yourself and what you feed with your thoughts and your ideas and your behavior, like it's all in connection with one another. Like you have like until you – if you remove a connection, then it then it completely changes the constitution of the whole picture. Right. You know what I mean? Like this podcast, if I yank this cord out of the out of the computer, it ceases to exist because there's nothing picking it up. Right. You know what I mean? That's the only thing I changed. Um, if I would have painted all these walls like pink, we'd have a different conversation because you'd be like, this is pretty weird. 
Right. You know? But like every environmental factor adds up and it's like the sum is greater than the – or the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. Meaning like the team, every single person matters from the manager to the coach to the star athlete to the role player. So how they all interact with one another, it, like the, the relation of this block world, um, I look at it like that's encompassing of all religion. It's based in science. It's based in physics. Like what's chemistry? It's just mixing different chemicals or compounds together. Everything is chemistry. Everything is physics. Um, and when I, my, again, I'm going down this huge rabbit hole, so just cut me off. My brother is a mathematician. Um, one of the simplest ways he talks about math is in relation to music. He goes, good math is just harmony. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you have something over here and something over here. There's equal sign in between. It's supposed to balance out. He's like, music is supposed to have harmony where it's like pleasant to listen to. When it's uh, if there's cacophony or like dissonance, which just basically means things are out of whack and imbalanced. That's the same thing with your health. You know, when your body is out of whack, if my shoulder was up here or whatever, you want to crack it back in place and yeah. get me more parallel. So I don't know what experience, I can't relate to one experience in my life that made me think this way, but like, I can't look at somebody else and be like, oh, that person's an alien and it's so informed to me. It's like the idea of hating your countrymen is so stupid. Right. right. It's stupid. But it's, it's, that's how I was as a youngster thinking about, like I said, rich people. Like I, I just had a disdain for them. For, we fear what we don't know. Yeah. And we ridicule and we keep it a distance. But I found the more people I open myself up to, yeah. the more relational points I make you know, my world gets bigger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not just about networking. It's just I have a better understanding of the world. I mean, when you – it's so funny when I asked you how you got into coaching. First thing you did was, oh, I reach out to people in my area. Then I reach out to a greater area. And now you're on like an international level. You just kept reaching out to other people that are interested in the same thing. Right. Right. I mean, we're yeah, we're getting ready for – we're training right now for some local tournaments, but we're, we're really getting ready for Vegas, which for some of my boys is a world team trial. I've, I've yet to have a guy make the world team in Greco. Uh, had a couple All-Americans. Um, we got guys close. You know, and if I'll be able to go or not, you know, that's not really the question. I'm not worried about going. I'm worried about getting these kids on the teams because that's their goals, you know. And it's, it is. It's pretty cool. Like, I love being able to travel around and, you know, using something that, that I have passion about that affords me the opportunity. And, and I live a humble lifestyle. So when I say affords me the opportunity, sleeping on floors, sleeping in my truck, whatever it takes to make these things happen, I'm all about that because this is what makes me tick, trying to make a difference in the next generation. And wrestling's the, the medium. But it's it, the great equalizer, man. Because like for you, you do – like you pay – like everything has a cost associated with it. You're willing to do anything it takes to pay that cost. Right. So if I were to psychoanalyze like why did you say it rich people? Because it might have seemed easier for them to pay a cost. Mm. Right? But some people suffer too much and some people suffer too little. So the amount of people that I've seen – because I actually help with people with addiction, recovery and mental health. That's like one of my passions and one of the business interests I have is that a lot of times some people that have all the money in the world suffer the worst from addiction. Right. And it's like, why is that? Because they didn't have to go and see mom. They didn't have to have the same overcoming and the same hardship that you dealt with. So your mental fortitude 
is some rich person's like aspiration where they're doing their they're reading books about it and they're you know yeah. they're they're trying to you know do a hot sauna and you're like I sleep on <laughs> I sleep in my truck in order to get what I want so like that's a frame that I would hope that you know to maybe could give some people that are feeling a certain way like what the struggle you go through your story is your superpower right you know you can't buy it <laughs> right we you were, cannot buy it with money <laughs> we were joking earlier about you know how i had no nutrition plan yeah. in my early days of training i just kind of put whatever in the gas tank and hope for the best and now that i'm smarter now I'm realizing, oh, I, I can get a whole, I can feel better. <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't have to be in pain all the time. I can, my body can recover if I put the right stuff in me. I mean, that's how bad it was. And it's, you just got used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there, there's one of your best roadhouse lines. It's amazing what you get and get used to. And, and that's when he met Doc for the first time. Right. Met, Oh, man, I'm going to watch Roadhouse again. So it's one of those things where, <laughs> um, and, and you talk about addiction, you know, very addictive, compulsive personality that I have, uh, my family. So I, I, I've had bouts with, with alcoholism and things like that. And I've never, I've, I've always been uh, one to take responsibility for all my mistakes. And, and, you know, this is me. This ain't. I don't care that my parents struggled with it. I don't care that it's in my history. I don't care that I was just out of the, you know, there's plenty of reasons that I could use to justify the bottom line. I made a poor choice. Reasons and causes are different. Right. Reasons and causes are different. So I always try to, you know, and I, I share some of these small things with my closest athletes because they're going to have challenges. I don't say it so that they avoid the challenge. I say it so that hopefully they can make a better choice when they're challenged. And if they don't, everybody's got to have their failure. They got to have their own stories, you know, and hopefully they aren't, hopefully their rock bottom isn't the same bottom as me. And my rock bottom wasn't the same as my old man's, you know, I haven't lost everything, you know, I, and I haven't, you know, I've lost time, which is a lot. Time is an incredible resource. Right. But I'm trying, I'm trying to make up for that. And I'm, you know, and that's what you hope you can save, save the next generation. Don't, don't waste your time on these things. You, you know, don't go as low. And honestly, the, one of the things that I've learned through my study of trying to help people with addiction and, and, and my own research into it and my own spiritual findings, whatever, is that the root cause of addiction oftentimes is a lack of connection. Right. Whether that's between, you know, lack of connection with the friends or family or God or or higher purpose or meaning. And when people can really recover, oftentimes it takes somebody they can relate to that they feel like can relate to them that's already recovered to get them out of it. Mm. So I will because it's public and it's you know not private or whatever, I saw it on a podcast, Chance Marsteller, someone that is like the the guy, one of the best people in our sport of wrestling of all time. But he opened up about his uh, addiction issues, and he said in this podcast story that it wasn't until he saw somebody else that was on the cover of U.S. magazines as a teenager that also was addicted to substances that did recover that he was then able to recover. Mm. 
And like I had, I had friends that I had a friend that was a someone else. I won't say a name that was addicted to heroin and fentanyl. And this person was incredibly successful at that at what he did. But it wasn't until one of the people that he knew from a past life or from like high school that recovered, and he goes, "Well, if that guy can do it. Why can't I do it?" Right. And like that story got him off of that substance for now going eight nine years. Yeah. And it's just like. The ability for you to have lived through and survived your 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 tribulations and trials, and then go and make connections with other people, like you know, I don't I don't fault anyone for having a hard day or a hard time, because everyone's rock bottom is different. Right, right. But if us having a conversation can reach somebody, and they can be like, oh well, shit, well if they can do it, I can do it, and help the one person, that's the ROI and the impact that I want to be making on people. Right. You know, because I don't want any suffering to go. Don't let any good suffering uh, go to waste. Right. <laughs> you know, because then your time that you thought you lost, maybe it wasn't lost because you saved somebody else's time. Well, yeah. What, what we say a little bit earlier, how you know, I, I feel I feel I'm pretty much on all, all my all my living now is bonus time. Yeah. Like oh yeah. I should have been used up already, and I and it's not a joke. I believe this. I believe my time will be up when I've served whatever my true purpose is. Like there's, there's a life, there's a person, there's a situation that needs to be, that needs to happen. And when that happens, you know, then that, then, then that should be the end, you know, because, and that's what we're here for. We're here to fulfill purpose. Right. So like, I don't, I don't ever see a world that I'm not coaching on some level. Maybe I'm coaching coaches someday instead of athletes because I won't be able to move as well or something. Right. But that's like I want to be used up. I know what my passion is. I'm lucky enough to know what that is. I, I know what I'm here for. So now it's just how many people can I influence and, and who's the person I'm here to help? You know, because, you know, and, and it, so, so you just try to put yourself out there as much as possible. Now, I make it sound like I'm a real warm, fuzzy guy, which is funny. <laughs> that's 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 it's the funny. hilarious part of anybody that ends up listening to this that knows me. They're like, "Who? No, this ain't. There's no way that's him." There's different ways to help people, though. Right. I mean, the way I help people is I, I do set very high bars and standards. Yes. And and as I said with with Hodgkins and uh, Artie, you know. That's ridiculous. No coach does that to to people of that no, caliber. No one does that, right? And and, I, and I'll tell you, there's 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 stories within our state organization for for freestyle back in the day. There's plenty of adults who knew about situations with some of our top athletes struggling with whatever situation it may have been, and because they were top athletes, the standard wasn't required of them. And so, things that happened to. You know, I'm not, I don't know if it was chance back then. I don't know when his problems started. Mm-hmm. But if, if if it was in high school that he was struggling, there were adults that knew, you know, if, you know, we have that one wrestler from up in the Lehigh Valley that just passed away recently. You remember? Mm. Really, really good wrestler. And same situation People knew about it and it gets glossed over because they're such good wrestlers. Standards can't be different because of who you are and what you bring to the table. 
the standard is the standard in, in, in my room. And, you know, we had a situation two years ago where we're getting ready for sectionals and an athlete uh, did something that shouldn't, shouldn't have been done in the wrestling room. We had a conversation about it. He owned up to it and he got suspended for the next match, which happened to be sectionals. And he would have been a district qualifier. And could have I overlooked that? Absolutely. And then, and then you lose credibility and then you lose the effectiveness on the youth when you tell them these are the standards and they're like, well, until I'm at a certain level, they're the standard, right, coach? You know, but they're not. The standard's the standard. Not, you know, people always say, why, why are you so hard? I say, well, because I'm that hard on myself. You know, you got to hold yourself to a high standard. You can forgive yourself for making mistakes, but, you know, I didn't make a world team trial or an Olympic team trial because there were moments in my life that I didn't hold myself to the right standards. And that's why that didn't happen for me. It's, it's no secret. It's not because I wasn't good enough. It's not because uh, bad luck, not enough money. It's none of those things. It's because I didn't hold myself accountable enough, consistently enough. I think that's the other part we were talking about early on about attitude and effort applied consistently over time. That's what takes us to those extraordinary heights, you know? It's so, it's just crazy what can happen when you reduce the gap in between, you reduce the gap in between reps. In other words, like if some, there's a study done, Faraz Sahabi is the owner and head coach at TriStar MMA in Montreal. He talks about if someone can do 20 pull-ups as their maximum effort in a row, Okay, and they do 20 pull-ups in a day or trying to get more, they might need a day or two to recover and they can maybe do three sets, hypothetically, of 20 pull-ups in a week, getting them 60 pull-ups. If someone's maximum is 20 pull-ups, they do 10, they can do 10 pull-ups a day times seven days. Right. They'll do more pull-ups in a week. Right. And then you, time, you take that timeline out, what does that look like for a whole year? They just got like a whole month on you, yeah. Effectively, yeah. And now you can use that analogy for practices or forever, but applied yep. consistency, showing up every day. Personal, without going too deep into it, there was a period of time where I wanted to be a cage fighter, and I worked at a tech startup. I worked sixty hours a week, and I trained twenty four hours a week, and I did. I recovered and did everything else I could. So from five a.m. to eleven p.m. for ninety day for almost ninety days. I did not drink, I did not smoke, I did not chase girls, I did not play video games, I didn't do anything other than sleep, eat, work. And I had the biggest gains in my work. I had the biggest I lost 35 pounds and won a cage fight. I met a new girl, and my problem was I set too short term of a goal and I started drinking again. The girl was wrong. Should have held out. Obviously the girl's <laughs> wrong. I'm very happily with somebody else now. But the point is, that is me, me relating to your story of, oh shit, if I would have just had a better goal and right. been more, and stayed on, what would have happened if I'd been on that war path up till this point? I don't know. Something much better than the result well, I achieved. I, but that's the difference. And I know that for a fact, because if that, if that same standard was applied consistently for a longer period of time, then what happens? Right. And that's, that's how you get the, 
the Chance Marshalls, the Jordan Burroughs, those guys. And, you know, Chance is getting close to Jordan Burroughs, right? You know, wins a match against him. He's close. But he had time off, right? Jordan Burroughs has, since high school, just been consistent, getting better and better all the time, tweaking, making room for family. Jordan Burroughs is impressive to me, and I think Chance hit this on the head talking about him. When you can do everything right and still fall short of the goal and have faith that you know you're on the right path, right, and not make a huge ninety degree turn, right. You know what I mean? Like staying the course because in life you can do everything right and you still can die. You, yep. can, you know what I mean? It, it's not. I, I you put everything out there in the world you can. Pray to whatever higher power you pray to, and then hope for the best. <laughs> Bruce Lee always talked about the the negative energy of worrying about outcome. Yeah. Only only thing you can control is the training piece. Yeah. So your outcome is, and you said it earlier, your your outcome's not a reflection of what you've done, unless you go back and realize you didn't train hard enough. Well, then yeah, obviously if you lost. That can be part of the reason, but it's always got to be about the development, always the development. And that's, I guess that's, that's the word for almost every facet of my life, whether I'm coaching, whether it's personal, whether it's with my children, I'm trying to develop the next, you know, for down the road. I'm not just trying to, to live right now without thought. Yes. And now that's tricky with stoicism, right? Because you you are supposed to be in the moment. Make sure you're using this time. But, of course, you have to have goals. You have to plan that. Right. And I think think one of the things about that is so tricky, right? Not to do mental gymnastics. But if the thing that I'm doing in the now is planning, then I'm still doing the thing in the now. I'm not fantasizing about what I'll be doing later. Correct. It's when you're – it's like how you do something is how you do everything. Right. So if you're intentional in the moment, okay, I told myself I was going to plan. I'm going to write out this next, you know, 7, 30, 90, 180-day goal. But you're in the moment. You're not thinking about what's on TV or whatever. Right. Um, that's how you can remain stoic. Right. What do I know? Um, it's so funny. I love asking people a time machine question. Like if you could go back in time mm. and change one thing, you already answered it. If you could go back in time and change one thing, your slogan of attitude and effort, you would have had more consistent attitude and effort, right? Yeah. That's what you're going to change. And I'm like, you know, what a good – someone that on the outside looking in, if you don't know Sean or you do know Sean, like this guy's pedal to the metal. He would have been more pedal to the metal on path. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely – Unlike the horses in Lancaster County, yeah. I didn't have my blinders on, so I, you know, I pulled this way and I pulled that way. I got off, I got off the path many times. So yeah, to, right. But so, we're there right now. We're there today. We're doing it the right way today. Today we're talking about that which matters. If someone has listened to this eighty-minute podcast, I commend you. I hope you find some value. I hope it enriches your life mm. and your liberty and your pursuit of property because that's what the founding fathers would want. Happiness is an emotion that's fleeting. Um, you know, pursue whatever property it is you want, whether that be a gold medal, whether that be dollars, whatever it is. It's the pursuit that is really what matters. Um, I hope you found this valuable. 
if you guys did, please support Lancaster Lions Wrestling, support Greco Roman. If you have daughters like me, get them training from eight months old to become D1 <laughs> All American female wrestlers. I'm just kidding, but seriously, I'm not. Um, and, you know, reach out to Sean if you are, you know, just reach out to him. He's a good guy. Uh, thanks for listening.